Uh, Friends, it's great to get to be with you for worship this morning. Uh, For those of you I don't know, my name is Charlie Dunn, and um, for a number of years I had the privilege of getting to serve as a pastor here in this congregation, and then about a year and a half ago we began a weekly Sunday worship for a, a new church in our family of churches called Grace Church Lake Highlands, and uh, I want to share with you that um, now we have about uh, 200 adults and 70 kids who would call uh, Grace their uh, church home, and um, about uh, half of those folks are people that you would probably know and recognize who've been connected to uh, Highland Park Prez, and then about half of those folks have no prior a connection to Highland Park Prez. Many of them did not have a church home that they were part of before, and it's been very encouraging to get to hear uh, some of their stories of the way that as they have begun to attend uh, weekly, worship, uh, weekly corporate worship, how that has um, led to revival in their marriage or that has um, strengthened their relationship with God. Many of them have plugged into our uh, community groups, and so we are uh, very encouraged in praising God for what he's doing uh, in Lake Highlands, and um, some of you might know back at Christmas Eve, we actually changed to a new worship location. I think we have a picture here from uh, our Easter worship that you can see um, of our church gathered there, and um, since we moved to Walnut Hill in Ferndale, which is a lot uh, more centrally located, a lot more visible in the Lake Highlands area, we've seen our, our worship attendance has gone up by about 60% as um, it's been a lot easier for people to find our, our church home. And uh, I just want to say thank you uh, because it has been your vision uh, and your generosity as Highland Park Presbyterian Church that has enabled us um, to be able to, to launch this new um, beacon for God's kingdom uh, in our city, and we are really glad uh, to get to continue pursuing the flourishing of our city as a family of churches alongside you. So I wanted to share that update uh, with you before we dive into our sermon this morning. Um, I have not been here for the last uh, few weeks, but those of you who have, you know that uh, we are in this, this summer series here looking at Um, Some familiar, beloved, favorite hymns. These are songs that have the ability not just to engage our uh, minds, but also really to stir our hearts and our emotions with the truths of the gospel. And I got to choose our hymn for this morning, which our choir led us in singing earlier uh, in the service. This is my father's world. Uh, It was penned by a guy named Maltby Babcock. How do you like that for a name? You don't hear that a lot these days, but here's how this hymn that we sang earlier begins. He says, this is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world, I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. And, you know, in many ways, Maltby Babcock is simply repeating, he's echoing what King David wrote in Psalm 19 3,000 years ago, where David says that we can profoundly encounter and experience God uh, through nature. Nature is the, the work of God's hands. And maybe some of you have had that kind of experience in creation before. Maybe it's why you've been willing even this summer to travel hundreds of miles so that you can look at a snow-capped mountain in Colorado. 
or so that you can gaze on the vastness of an ocean in Florida, or so maybe you can um, get to a place where there is not enough uh, light pollution so that at night you can look up and you can actually see a sky filled with stars. And I was encouraged that actually one of our, our church members, I see him here, Dr. Mike Harris, sent me an email this week sharing that actually the chief of NASA apparently loves to quote Psalm 19. Um, apparently he's a Christian, and for him the, the heavens do declare the glory of God. And, and maybe you've had that experience in God's creation before where it has filled you with that sense of awe and wonder, even worship. Now, why is that? Why is it that nature sometimes is able to move us as if it were a great work of art, like a stirring piece of music, or like even a, a tear-jerking story or movie? Why is it that nature is able to move us like a great work of art? And you see, David gives us his answer in Psalm 19. He says it's because nature is a work of art. Nature, he says, is the work of God's hands. And it's as if all of creation, therefore, is constantly singing. It's singing to us this refrain, you are not an accident. Your life matters. You are here because of the work of the vision and imagination and creativity of an artist greater than any other artist you have ever known. Nature testifies, it sings to the reality that it was made. And of course, that was Maltby Babcock's experience that actually led him to write this very hymn. He was walking along the Niagara Falls escarpment. Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls before? I remember going to the falls when I was nine years old. And, you know, Niagara Falls, maybe it's a little bit more of a tourist trap, a little bit more kitschy than maybe it was back when Maltby Babcock was experiencing it. Back in his day in the late 1800s, it probably was a little bit more pristine. But as he was walking along the Niagara Escarpment, looking out on just this stunning natural beauty, he was moved to worship. He was moved to praise, and so he wrote this hymn. And that's what nature actually is supposed to do. It's supposed to move us when we feel that sense of awe and wonder. We're supposed to respond with worship. And yet, you know, not even um, just Christians, even those who don't believe in God. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're not fully sure what you believe. You don't really know if you believe that there is a God, if there is a creator. Nonetheless, you can't fully escape the witness, the testimony of God's creation. Verses 2 and, and 4 of this hymn, uh, David says that, that their voice, the, this testimony, it goes to everyone everywhere, to the ends of the earth, even if intellectually then. You would say, you know what, I don't really know if life has meaning or purpose. I don't know if there's a God. Maybe we're just here by accident. You can't help but living as if life does have meaning. You can't help but living as if your life really does have purpose. Nobody can live as if we truly are just a meaningless accident because that's how powerful the witness of nature is. It testifies to the fact that we have been made. And so God certainly reveals himself to us through his world. 
And yet, maybe this seems a little bit counterintuitive. While you can know, you can know through creation that this is your creator's world. Nature can tell you this is your creator's world. It actually cannot tell you that this is your father's world. Maltby Babcock actually had to learn that another way. Nature can tell you that God is powerful. Nature can tell you that God exists. Nature can tell you that God is an awesome, beautiful, glorious being. But nature cannot tell you that God is a father who loves you, who longs to have an intimate personal relationship with you. Nature cannot bring you into a loving communion with God as your father. You know, there's a lady by the name of Annie Dillard back in the 1970s who wrote a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. It won a Pulitzer Prize, and Annie Dillard was not a Christian, but she had this longing to connect with God, and she thought, maybe I'll have this divine encounter if I spend some time in creation. So she went out to this beautiful place in Virginia called Tinker Creek, and she spent time out in nature, and what she experienced very much shocked her, surprised her, because what she found is that while nature is beautiful, it's also violent. It's full of, of tooth and claw, survival of the fittest, the strong, preying upon the weak. She had this one experience that, that horrified her when she looked and she saw this, this water bug come and suck the brains out of a frog on the water. And she thought to herself, yes, nature is beautiful. There are snow-capped mountains, there are sunsets, but there are also hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. Nature is not going to tell you that God is a father who loves you. History will not tell you that God is a father who loves you. Look at all of the war and the oppression and slavery and injustice. Current events will not tell you that God is a God who, who loves you. I mean, look at all of the, the shootings that have happened in, in recent weeks in our country. Even other religions will not tell you that God is a father who loves you. I have a friend of mine who grew up as a very devout Muslim in Turkey. He said, we would say that Allah is merciful, but you would never say that Allah is loving. Actually, it would be great blasphemy to refer to Allah as your father, to think you could have that intimate of a relationship with him. Where did we ever get the idea that this is our father's world? That God is a father who loves us and wants a relationship with us. You don't get it from creation. You get it from the scriptures. You get it from the Bible. You get it chiefly in the teaching of Jesus, but you get it not from God's world. You get it from God's word. And you know, you see this taught to us really so explicitly, actually here in Psalm 19. Look at the contrast, beginning in verses 1 through 6. David, the psalmist, every time he's talking about how God reveals himself in his world, he uses this Hebrew name for God, Elohim. It means a God of awesome power and greatness and transcendence. But the moment in verse 7 that David begins to talk about the scriptures... To talk about God's commands and his precepts, his word. These are all synonyms for the Bible, for the scriptures. He uses a different name for God. It's the Hebrew name Yahweh. 
We see it translated in all capitals, L-O-R-D. That's the personal, intimate, covenant name of God which he revealed to his people Israel when he entered a loving covenant relationship with them when he said, I will be like your father in Israel. You will be like my firstborn son. If you want to know that this is your father's world, if you want to know God as your loving father, you're not going to find that simply in his world. You're going to find that in his word. I don't know if you've noticed, it's pretty hot outside these days. Frankly, the only time of day when maybe you could have an enjoyable time outside is early in the morning. Yesterday, 8 a.m., you know, my wife and son and I, we went on a walk um, because we thought this is the only time we want to be outside today. And you might look around this room this morning and think, what are you doing here? This is your chance. You could be enjoying God's creation. You could be outside. Listen, friends, if we believed that you could encounter God equally in his world as within his word, if we thought you could be just as refreshed in your soul by spending a little bit of time on the golf course or going to ride your bike at White Rock Lake, why would we gather weekly for worship on Sunday morning? We gather for worship to hear God's word because God's word uniquely, as David says, is able to revive the soul. Why do we talk about the importance of spending daily time reading God's word, communing with him through his word, if not because that's the way you learn to know God as your father? And so what I want to do in the remainder of our time this morning is I just want to encourage you to, to think about, well, how do you experience that loving communion with your Father through His Word? Because I know, frankly, some of you, maybe you've tried. So I'm going to try to read the Bible, and you opened it up, and it wasn't a very powerful experience. You found it confusing. You didn't get a lot out of it. You didn't feel like it drew you into a loving communion with your Father. So how do you read God's Word in a way that helps you experience that loving communion with your Father? And if you want to do that, I think there are two postures you need to embrace and then there are two practices you need to learn to employ. So let's walk through those together. So first, two postures to embrace. Here's the first posture. That is, when you open up God's word, you've got to expect for him to speak to you through it. You know, all through Psalm 19, the consistent witness that David gives us is that God is a God who is there and he is not silent. He's a God who loves to speak. He loves to make himself known. He loves to communicate, to reveal himself to us. And so therefore, when you come to God's word, you've got to expect him to speak. You can't read the Bible the way you'd read an email for work. You can't read it like an assignment for school where you're just trying to get information or comprehension. You've got to read it with what the psalmist calls the fear of the Lord. It's this sense of, of reverence, this expectation that the king of the universe is going to speak to you personally, specifically, through the very word that he inspired so long ago. In fact, I would suggest to you then, it's not even really worth your time to open the Bible until you pray this very simple prayer. God, speak, for your servant is listening. God, I want to hear from you through your word. 
That's the first posture we need, that expectation that God will speak to us in his word. And then secondly, we've got to believe and affirm that what God says to us in his word is actually for our good. That it's meant for our flourishing, even when it may not initially seem to be that way. Did you notice how David describes the scriptures? It's pretty incredible the, the, the adjectives that he uses to talk about God's word. He says, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. God's words, he says, are sweeter than honey. Now, I do not know about you, but that is not always my experience of reading the scriptures. Sometimes I feel, particularly when I come across God's commands, his precepts, when it feels like God's telling me how he wants me to live my life, sometimes it doesn't seem so much like, like dripping honeycomb, but rather bitter pills to swallow. God says I'm supposed to always forgive when people wrong me, but I'd rather hold on to resentment and bitterness. God's word says that I'm supposed to be marked by integrity, but sometimes I think if I can just shade the truth and bend it a little bit, it will be more in my interest. God's word says that if I put the interests of other people ahead of my own, that that's the way of Jesus, that's how I'm supposed to live. But then I wonder, well, then what's in it for me? Sometimes God's word does not initially seem as if it is for our good to obey. But if you want to experience loving communion with God as your father, you've got to come with this recognition that this is my father's world. My father made this world. My father made my heart, so therefore can't I assume he probably knows what is for my good? He probably knows how I was made to flourish, and so when I align myself with that, it will lead to my good, and when I set myself in opposition to that, it will lead to some breakdown and decay because I'm going against the grain of his world. And you know, some of us have had the experience where we get to see that borne out, we see that God's commands really are for our good. You know, even, even physicians could tell us that if you harbor anger, if you refuse to forgive, nothing leads to heart disease but more than holding on to anger. And, and of course, it sucks the joy out of your life. If you want a lasting, intimate relationship with another person, you have to learn to put their interests ahead of your own. We see the way sometimes that obedience to God's word leads to our good, and I think probably many folks in this sanctuary today could attest to the fact that when you started saying yes to what God's word says yes to, and when you started saying no to what his word says no to, that it revitalized your marriage, or it revitalized your approach to your daily work, or it enhanced your sense of confidence and, and self-esteem, because God's word truly is for are good. But if you want to experience loving communion with God in his word, you've got to come with that assumption. You can't come standing in judgment over scripture thinking, I like this part, but I don't like this part. Do you come standing over God's word or do you sit under his word and, and surrender to it with a sense of God, you know what's best for me. So two postures to embrace, to expect him to speak and to believe he knows what is for your good. But then secondly, two practices 
to learn to employ. And I say practice because they are going to take practice. You won't get this immediately and it won't change your experience of God right away. But I promise you, if you'll learn these practices, it will lead to a deeper communion with your Father in His Word. And here's the first practice you can see on the screen. It's to learn to answer God in prayer. You ever heard that term before, answering prayer? It was coined by a pastor, a theologian by the name of Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson has written a lot about the scriptures, the Psalms in particular. Actually, um, you know, the guy sitting next to him, some of y'all might know, that's Bono, the lead singer from uh, U2. He actually became a Christian by reading what Eugene Peterson had to write about the Psalms. There's a great YouTube video about that if you want to check that out. But um, this idea of answering prayer Um, is this, Eugene Peterson says, in any conversation, there are certain dynamics to the conversation. So for instance, if if you and I have a conversation after this service, and I know you're a big golf fan, and I say to you, hey, who do you think's gonna win the British Open? If I ask you that question, suddenly, what are we gonna be talking about? Talking about golf. Whoever starts the conversation has a lot of power over where the conversation is going to go. You kind of get to pick the subject. You get to pick the direction and the tone. And the same is true for our conversations, our interactions with God. And so Peterson says, look, there's two ways to pray. There's calling prayer where we start the conversation. We call out to God and we say, God, would you help me? God, I'm in trouble. Would you come through for me? God, I need you. God, if you're there, reveal yourself to me. There's calling prayer where we start the conversation. He says there's nothing wrong with that. That kind of prayer, you see it in the Bible, that's okay. But he says there's a kind of prayer that's actually going to grow you faster, that's going to grow you deeper, that's going to draw you into more loving communion with your Father, and that's what he calls answering prayer. Answering prayer. And you know, you actually see this kind of answering prayer um, played out actually here in Psalm 19. You you might have noticed in verses 1 through 10, um, David, he's talking about God. He's saying this this is who God is. These are the things that are true about how God reveals himself. But then in verse 11, it shifts, right? It goes from him talking about God to now what's he doing? He's actually talking to God. He says, God, would you, would you forgive my hidden faults? God, you are my rock. God, you are my redeemer. He he goes from talking about God to talking to God. And you see what answering prayer is then is it's allowing God to start the conversation in his word. So you read scripture, you read God's word, and you think about it, you ponder it. You you meditate on what God is saying to you through it, and then as as you sense that God is speaking to you, you answer him. You pray in response to what you're reading in his word. You know, I I think for a lot of us, we end up having one-way conversation with God, where either you love Bible study, and so you read the Bible and you study it a lot, and then you just close it and walk away, but you never talk to God about what you just read in his word. Or we love to pray and we have all of our prayer lists and all of our concerns and we pray those things, but we never give God a chance to actually speak. And what answering prayer means is it means as you're reading the scriptures, if you read something that's praiseworthy, you don't just say that's really cool, but you stop and you praise God for it. Or if you read something that's convicting, you stop and you confess what you've been convicted of. 
Or if you read something where you say, gosh, I don't have that, but I want more of that in my life, you stop and you ask him for that. And if you learn to pray in this way, I promise you it's going to lead you into deeper communion with your Father through his word. So we've got to learn to answer him in prayer. And then finally, we've got to learn to read for our Redeemer. Do you know how to read for your Redeemer in the Bible? And I think sometimes as people have shared with me their experience of of reading the Bible, they were really excited. They said, you know, I'm going to read God's word. And and yet as they they do, they they think, gosh, I'm going to become this this person who, like Jesus, I'm going to be more compassionate and more loving and more um, faithful and courageous. And, And they start reading the Bible and then eventually they find themselves discouraged. Because what they discover is that God's expectation and God's standard it is so far beyond who they know themselves to actually be. They find themselves discouraged, even convicted, because they think, I'll never live up to who God wants me to be. And you know, in some ways, that's actually David's experience in this psalm. David, who speaks so positively of God's word, and yet what does he say in verse 12? He says, who can discern his errors? And he says, God, would you keep me from willful sins? What is he saying? He's saying, God, probably the best that I can do is to just try to avoid the willful sins, to avoid the sins that I'm even aware of, that I know the ways that I'm intentionally disobeying you. But God, who can discern his errors? Frankly, there are patterns of self-righteousness or pride or worry or, or, or greed in my life that I probably don't even see. And I think that's true to a lot of people's experience as they read the scriptures. They find themselves convicted with this sense of of, of who could live the kind of life that God longs for us to live. And yet, what does David say in verse 14? This is one of my favorite verses. Maybe it's one of yours. He says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And you know that word pleasing, when he says, may my my words and my meditation be pleasing in your sight. All through the Old Testament, that word pleasing, it's the word that was used to describe a sacrifice that was brought to the temple. And you know, a sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be without any blemish for it to be pleasing in the sight of God. And you might say, then how could David have the audacity after he's just acknowledged how broken and sinful he is, how could he have the audacity to think that the words of his mouth, even the meditation of his heart, could be pleasing in the sight of his God? And you see, the answer, friends, is because David knew that God was his redeemer. He knew God was his redeemer, that God would somehow redeem him and rescue him from his sin. And if David knew that, how much more so can we? Those of us on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, Christ redeemed us. 
He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing of the law might come to us through Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying there is he's saying, listen, on the cross, Jesus took the curse. He took all of the judgment for your disobedience to God's law. You know, David says that in keeping your law, God, there is great reward, but the corollary is that in not keeping your law, there is great punishment. And yet Jesus took that punishment. He bore that cost. He took that curse upon himself. And more than that, now we get the reward of his obedience. It's credited to us. We get that blessing bestowed to us because he's our redeemer. And do you know how to read the Bible looking for your redeemer? To look at any passage of scripture and to say, either how does this show me my need for a redeemer, Or how does it show me how my Redeemer has already met that need for me? And listen, when you learn to read the Bible in that way, what it does is it drains out the fear. It drains out the shame because you know it doesn't matter if I'm convicted. It doesn't matter if I'm exposed because there's now no condemnation for me in Jesus. I have a Redeemer. Actually, you find, like David, that you you may want increasingly to obey God's word because you think, I want to please the heart of a God who would redeem me at such cost to himself. And you find that there's a greater hope, a greater hopefulness because you know that Jesus didn't just come to redeem you from your sin, but that one day he's going to come again to redeem everything that is broken in our world. So you can sing that last verse of this is my father's world. You can say the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. You know your redeemer isn't going to rest until he one day makes all things new. Do you know how to commune with God and his word in these ways? To expect that he's going to speak to you through it. To believe that he knows what is best for your good to read in a way where you are answering God as he initiates the conversation in his word, and then to read for your redeemer. Let's pray together as we continue in worship. Our God, we thank you that you are there and that you are not silent. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and that you have revealed yourself to us through your world. But more so, God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word as our Father. We pray, God, that we would not neglect your word, but that we would learn to treasure it and to spend time with you through it, even as David does in this psalm. And we thank you that we can come to you and commune with you without fear because we know that we have a Redeemer that we can trust that the meditation of our heart and the words of our mouth will be pleasing in your sight, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you for our Redeemer. We pray that that would give us the confidence to commune with you in your word and then to move out and live with you and for you in your world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.